Hey everybody, welcome to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and in this podcast, we're going to be diving deep into scripture. Just as a heads up, most of the episodes you come across on this podcast are taken straight off of my YouTube channel, also called Now Let's Be Honest. So if you like what you hear, be sure to go check that out too, because I have plenty more Bible studies on there, as well as other content like blogs, biblical deep dives, and theological reflections on various art and media. That also might help explain why sometimes in this podcast, it sounds like I'm referencing a visual on a screen because these lessons were originally accompanied by videos. That all being said, I don't want to waste your time, so what say you we get this party started? We're going to kick this podcast off with a deep dive study into the Gospel of Matthew, and it's going to take us months to get through it, but I think it's going to be a journey that is well worth your time. What you'll learn fairly quickly is that I'm a huge, huge, huge context guy, though, so we're going to spend a few episodes talking about the Gospels in general before we actually hop into Matthew itself. I'm really glad to have you here, and I hope that the weeks and months and, Lord willing, years to come will be a blessing to you. Welcome to Now Let's Be Honest. Today, what I want us to do is I want to give an introduction to the Gospels. And I just want to give us an introduction to basically the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and to talk about what makes them unique from one another. Because as we're approaching the Gospel of Matthew, and as we're trying to study the Gospel of Matthew, we need to be asking ourselves, what is it that sets Matthew apart from Mark, Luke, and John? Why does Matthew need to exist? And why are there four Gospels to begin with? Uh, are they telling different stories, or are they telling the same story from a different perspective? Uh, these are things we need to wrestle through, because if we can understand and what sets Matthew apart from the other three, it'll make it a lot easier for us to go through this and understand what Matthew's main goal was in telling his story. And the main way that I want to do this is I want to start off by just looking at the first verse and the last verse of each of these Gospels. This is my favorite way to go about talking about the differences between them, and that's because depending on whatever, like just go pick your favorite book series or your favorite book in the world or your favorite movie and look at how it starts and how it ends. Because if it's telling a good story and if the person who's telling the story knows what they're doing, the beginning and ending of it will tell you everything you need to know about what's going on in the middle. For instance, the Bible itself, it begins with God creating the world and dwelling with man in a garden. It ends with the culmination of all things and the new creation and God dwelling with man. That tells me that the story of scripture is chiefly about God's commitment to dwelling with man again. Go pick your favorite book series. You'll see something exactly like that. How it starts and how it ends will kind of set up and conclude the story in between. That's just how things work. So if we can look at the beginning of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and look at the ends of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we can gain a lot of insight as to what makes each of them unique and separate from the others. And so let's look at Matthew. This is the gospel we're going to be going through uh, over the course of the next few weeks and months. And so let's look at it. It opens up by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We are going to spend so much time breaking down that one verse right there in weeks to come that I don't want to go too in-depth on it. But right off the bat, you can see that it's making certain assertions. First off, the phrase, the book of the genealogy, that's a callback to Genesis because uh, the way the whole book of Genesis is structured is by books of genealogies, right? In Hebrew, it's the word toledot, right? Uh, there's these toledot sections, the books of the genealogies of Adam, the books of the genealogies of Noah, right? Stuff like that. And so this is calling back to Genesis, but it says specifically that it is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word Christ, it means anointed one, and it calls back to the Hebrew word Messiah, right? So it's Christos in Greek, Mashiach in Hebrew. This is talking about the anointed king 
who is going to come to deliver the people and reign eternally over all things. Right? And Matthew defends this by saying that the genealogy is of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. David and Abraham were these two significant figures in the Old Testament who God made eternal covenants to. Abraham, God made a covenant, we call it the Abrahamic covenant, and he basically promised that through Abraham would come a seed through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. David, God made a promise. David was this famous king. You'll know he's the one who killed Goliath and he became this super amazing king. David is the one who God made a covenant to that eventually he would have a king who reigned on the throne forever, right? So this is where we really get the Messiah idea fleshed out. So right off the bat, in his very first verse, Matthew is asserting that Jesus is that guy. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the fulfillment of the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants, and this is his story. If you go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you have Jesus standing before his disciples, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And he gives the Great Commission. And so you have the Gospel of Matthew beginning with him saying, Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He is the one unto whom all authority belongs. And the Gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. And so it seems like there's almost this progression of idea that Matthew's suggesting that the Messiah is even more than they'd ever possibly anticipated. Yes, he is the king. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. But he doesn't just get all authority on earth. He gets all authority in heaven and on earth. And so, to me, the Gospel of Matthew is presenting Jesus as king, right? It is defending the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's what we're going to see throughout his gospel. He is defending that Jesus has a valid claim to the throne, and he's defending what Jesus' kingdom is going to look like. By contrast, look at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says this is just the beginning of the good news. And if you read the verses that follow, he doesn't give an extended birth narrative like Matthew does. He instead immediately starts with the baptism by John the Baptist, the temptation in the wilderness, and the ministry of Jesus. And then the way the Gospel of Mark ends is actually very abrupt. You'll notice that if you go to the end of Gospel of Mark in chapter 16, starting in verse 9 and going to the end, a lot of Bibles will either put this in the footnotes or they'll put the whole section in brackets. And they'll say that, the earliest manuscripts do not have those final verses. So it seems like that originally the Gospel of Mark ended at chapter 16, verse 8, which is pretty wild because it's super abrupt with the women finding the empty tomb with the resurrected Jesus. And it says they went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And then it just comes to an end, which is very, very weird because the Gospel of Mark begins abruptly and it ends abruptly. It begins with Jesus beginning his work and his ministry, and then it ends with him resurrecting. And that's kind of weird because you're saying, well, how does it start and end? Well, it seems to be focused on Jesus's actions, right? The beginning of the good news. Well, what is the good news? It's what Jesus did for us. It is what Jesus accomplished for us. It is how Jesus came down as a suffering servant for the sake of mankind, and he laid down his life as a propitiation for our sins and as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, right? That is what the Gospel of Mark is communicating. It is the fact that Jesus was a man of action. And when you look at the Gospel itself, the word immediately shows up again and again and again. It's very fast-paced. There's not a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of extended discourses in there. It is very action-oriented. And that's because, to me, it seems like Mark is presenting Jesus as a servant, right? He is the suffering servant who came to live and die and rise again for the sake of mankind. And this isn't to say that Mark doesn't present Jesus as a king, and it's not to say that Jesus, uh, that Mark, sorry, 
This isn't to say that Mark doesn't present Jesus as a king, and it's not to say that Matthew doesn't present Jesus as a servant. They both do both of those things, but they're accentuating one over the other because that's the primary goal of their gospel. That's the only thing I'm trying to highlight here. Okay, so if Matthew is about Jesus as the king, and Mark is about Jesus as the servant, then what is Luke about? Well, Luke starts off his gospel by saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account that you may have certainty. Uh, obviously, that's a much more condensed version, but if you read verses 1 through 4 of his gospel, you basically have this prologue to the gospel of Luke where he explains that he was not an eyewitness, but many people have recorded their eyewitness testimonies, and he seemed to basically go about conducting research and gathering information in order that this one man named Theophilus could have certainty in the things that he had heard. And so Luke seems to be primarily focused on the historicity of Jesus, right? So he's not specifically just defending the fact that Jesus is a king. He's not even specifically just focused on Jesus' actions. Rather, he seems to be specifically focused on Jesus' life, on Jesus' time on earth and the things that he did during that time on earth. And so if you keep reading, he will give a birth account, but he doesn't even start with the birth of Jesus. He actually starts with the birth announcement of John the Baptist. And then he goes to the announcement of Jesus. Then he goes to the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And so he actually tells us more about Jesus' family background and his family lifestyle. He's the one book where we actually get insight to Jesus as a child. And then if you look at how the book ends, it says that while Jesus blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And so his gospel is the one gospel that actually ends by detailing where Jesus went. If you actually look at Matthew and Mark, it actually not, they never talk about Jesus leaving, right? Matthew, it just says that he gave the great commission and then the book ends. And then Mark ends with the women fleeing from the tomb. Luke is the only one that actually details the ascension. And that's how he ends Luke and begins the book of Acts. So it seems like Luke is primarily focused on the 33 and a half years that Jesus spent on earth, right? From the announcement of his cousin's birth to his ascension and his departure from this earth, which would suggest to me that Luke is primarily focused on Jesus as man, right? And once again, this isn't to suggest that Luke does not teach that Jesus is king and servant. No, he does. Absolutely. Likewise, Matthew and Mark also teach that Jesus is man. The idea is that this is simply their focus, right? This is their primary goal. Matthew is defending the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Mark is defending the fact that Jesus came and did the things necessary to atone for our sins, that he suffered just as the prophets foretold. Luke is defending the fact that Jesus was a real historical man and that his story really did happen. Then you have John, who starts off his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's easy to tell what John's primary focus is. He's pointing out the fact that Jesus is God. Yes, he is king. Yes, he is servant. Yes, he is man. But you can't just start the story there. No, you have to realize that Jesus is so much more than any of those three things. He is God in the flesh. And yes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do assert that Jesus is God, but this is John's primary goal. And so whenever he's trying to figure out where to start his gospel, he has to start in a vastly different place than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew's thinking, where do I start my gospel? Well, if I want to defend the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, I probably need to prove that he has the right credentials. So I should probably start with a genealogy. Mark is saying, okay, well, how do I prove that Jesus did the things necessary to be the suffering servant? Well, let me talk about the things he did. So let me just say the beginning of the gospel. Let me start with his ministry. Luke is saying, well, how do I prove that Jesus was a historical figure? Well, let me start talking about his family. And let me talk about his cousin. And let me talk about those things. 
But John's saying, if I want to tell the story of Jesus being God, God has no beginning or end. So maybe the only place I can start is where the Bible itself starts. Let's go way back to the beginning. And he says, in the beginning was the word. He can't even call him Jesus, right? He can't say in the beginning was Jesus because Jesus was simply the name that the son of God was given whenever he came in the flesh. And so he can't even call him Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. So he's conveying the idea of the Trinity. He was somehow with God and was God at the same time. So he is separate yet unified. He is a person of the Godhead, yet he is God himself. And then sure enough, that's what you see at the end of the Gospel of John as well. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, but I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so John specifies, hey, I spent three and a half years with this guy and there was so much he did, you wouldn't even be able to believe it. But if I were to write all those things down, there wouldn't be enough books to contain it. Why? Because Jesus did so much more than just serve people for three and a half years. He is the God of all creation whose story has been written in the sky and written in the stars. And even in scripture, we only see a select portion of the things that God is doing in the world because it's specifically telling the story of God's commitment to dwelling with man again, right? And so John's pointing out that Jesus is God. And that is his primary focus. That yes, Jesus is king. Yes, Jesus is servant. Yes, Jesus is man. But he's so much more than all those three things. He is God in the flesh. And so all four of these gospels do portray Jesus as all of these four things, but each of them seems specifically focused on portraying him in that particular light. And you see that by just looking at the first and last verse of each gospel. Now what I want to do is I want us to get some background information on each of these, just so we have basically an overview of each of the gospels. And I'm going to share with you author, date, audience, stuff like that. Uh, And the main thing I want you to know going into this is that there's a lot of debate around these things, right? And I'm just going to share with you the conservative estimates of modern scholarship. Uh, But in videos to come, I'm actually going to go into more detail about where I specifically stand because there's actually a a lot of places where I disagree with modern scholarship because I think it approaches it from a stance of skepticism, which I think influences their data. Uh, But let's just go through these. All right. Gospel of Matthew. Uh, According to tradition, it was written by the apostle Matthew himself, the former tax collector, and it was written to Jewish people. Right? And there's a lot of elements within the gospel which would suggest this. And the traditional date for this is actually A.D. 50 to 60, somewhere in the 50s or maybe even in the early 60s. And once again, this is the conservative date. Uh, a lot of people would suggest that it's written even later. Um, like a lot of more skeptical people or more liberal um, scholars would lean that way. Uh, but actually, and we'll see this in the next video, because uh, next video I'm going to defend my position. I actually might suggest that Matthew was written even earlier than that. Uh, and I'm not going to get into that into a lot of detail right now, but that's kind of where I stand. Uh, fun fact about Matthew is that traditionally Matthew was written according to the Hebrew dialect. We have a lot of early sources uh, from within the first few centuries that suggest that Matthew was written either in the Hebrew dialect or in the Hebrew language, which is just kind of fun because if it was written in the Hebrew language, um, that would suggest that that's the only book of the Bible to be written that way originally, which is kind of cool. Uh, I'm skeptical about that claim, uh, and I'll talk about that. I think the Hebrew, like, there's a reason I put dialect, not language, uh, because I think Hebrew dialect is correct, but maybe not the Hebrew language, but I think it's kind of cool. All right, the Gospel of Mark. Traditionally, it was written by the um, guy named John Mark, who was first off a traveling companion of Paul, and then eventually a traveling companion of Peter. Uh, you might remember he was the cousin of Barnabas and Uh, Basically, Paul and Barnabas came to a big old fight because of Mark. Uh, But Mark was the author of the Gospel of Mark. 
And traditionally speaking, it was written to Romans while Mark was in Rome with Peter. Um, and the traditional date is the AD 50s. I would actually maybe date Mark a little bit later. Once again, I'll defend this in my next video. Um, but the reason why most people hold that Mark was written earlier than Matthew is because the modern scholarly consensus is that Mark was the first of the Gospels written. I actually disagree with that, which once again is what I'm going to defend in next week's video. But for right now, I'm just wanting to say the traditional date is that it was written in the 80s, And also traditionally, Mark is considered the memoirs of Peter. So we have a lot of early sources that are asserting that since Mark wasn't an eyewitness, he had to get his stories from somewhere. And because he was a traveling companion of Peter, people actually claim, like there's actually earlier references that rather than just calling it the gospel of Mark, they call it the memoirs of Peter, which Mark wrote down, which is actually kind of cool. The Gospel of Luke uh, was written by the physician and historian Luke, and it was written to Gentile people probably around AD 60 to 61. Uh, we have reasons for thinking that that date's probably fairly accurate. Um, and so it really is kind of a counterpart to the Gospel of Matthew, right? So Matthew was written to the Jews, Luke was written to the Gentiles. So you have a Jewish Gospel, Gentile Gospel. Um, and fun fact about Luke is that he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, right? So we read a lot about Luke in the Gospel of Acts, where he actually shows up in first person uh, because he's also the one who wrote the Gospel of Acts. And fun fact about Luke, he actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. Um, Paul wrote more books in the New Testament, but whenever it comes to word count and you take Luke and Acts combined, Luke actually has Paul beat. So that's kind of fun. And Luke is also, uh, traditionally speaking, the only Gentile author of Scripture at all, which is cool. Then you have the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, and traditionally speaking, he wrote this to all people and he was specifically focused on teaching that Jesus was the son of God, right? You actually see this at the end of the gospel of John, where he says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may find life in his name, that you may find life in his name. Traditionally speaking, he wrote this in the 80s, 80s or 90s, but really we don't know when he wrote this. We do have very good reason to think that he wrote this later than the other gospels, um, but really it's possible that he wrote this around the same time he wrote first, second and third John revelation. We just have no idea. Uh, fun fact about the gospel of John is that it both complements and supplements the synoptic gospels. Uh, it complements the synoptic gospels, uh, in the sense of there are certain elements of the gospel of John, which kind of expect the reader to have some level of familiarity with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, there are certain elements, like for instance, there's one place where he mentions that certain events happened before John the Baptist was arrested. The thing is, in the Gospel of John, he never actually details the arrest or execution of John the Baptist. And so it seems like he is assuming that readers have already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in which case you can say that John is a compliment to them. He's not trying to replace them. He's not trying to one-up them. He's actually giving just other material that actually goes hand-in-hand -hand with it. On the other side of that, it also serves as a supplement because it wasn't meant to replace them, but it does stand very well on its own. And you can read the Gospel of John on its own and it stands very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Another thing worth highlighting here is that I use the word synoptic gospels because this is a phrase you need to become familiar with in order to just understand this whole series because the synoptic gospels are a reference to those first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you don't have to be a scholar to read through these gospels and recognize that there is a lot of similarities between them. And you also don't have to be a scholar to recognize that John is very different. So if you're reading through these, like just like in order, you'll read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke and be like, wow, I feel like I just read the same story multiple times. And then you get to John and it's almost like a breath of fresh air where you're like, wow, this is different. And so 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke evidently have some sort of literary relationship that John does not have, and for that reason, John can both complement and supplement them. There's no contradictory information, and John can stand on its own, but it's also read very well as a companion piece to the others. That being said, for the rest of this video, I do want to wrestle through that idea of the synoptic problem, because this is something that is very crucial in understanding the Gospels and how they were formed, and... I'm actually going to spend the rest of this video talking about it, and then in the next video, the entire video is going to be me defending my position on where I stand in all of this, because where I stand on it is going to be very formative in how we approach the Gospel of Matthew, so I really want you to understand where I land. And so, in order to understand the synoptic problem, let's just kind of break it down. Uh, the evident similarities between the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are so striking that scholars have puzzled over their relationship to one another for centuries, giving rise to the synoptic problem. You look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it is very evident that there is something weird going on with those, and I think this graph right here will really help demonstrate that. Uh, if you look at it, uh, there's actually a lot of content in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that all three of them share. In fact, over three quarters of the Gospel of Mark, 76%, 76% of the Gospel of Mark is found in both Matthew and Luke, but that content only covers less than half of Matthew and Luke, because Matthew and Luke are so much longer than Mark. So that's very interesting. But then it gets even crazier whenever you realize that Mark and Matthew have a lot in common that is not shared in Luke. And then it gets even crazier when you realize that Mark and Luke have a lot in common that are not shared in Matthew. And then it gets even crazier when you realize that Matthew and Luke have a lot in common that is not found in Mark. And then it gets even crazier when you realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have unique material that is not found in any of the other people's stuff. That being said, this is a very confusing subject, and people have debated about the literary relationship between these Gospels literally ever since the beginning of their creation, right? Ever since they were written, the early church fathers and everybody is trying to wrestle through the relationship of them and exactly how they were produced, and this has come even to um, a head, really, in the last 200 years with the rise of critical scholarship. And before we go more in-depth here, I do want to give a clarification, because I am kind of skeptical of modern scholarship in many ways, and the more scholarly stuff I've read, the more skeptical I've become, and that's because most modern theories, firstly, approach the subject from a stance of skepticism, and secondly, discount the role of memory and divine inspiration in the development of scripture, right? And really, the first one is what leads to the second one. Uh, so let me explain that. Firstly, they approach the subject from a stance of skepticism. Uh, most modern theories you read will approach it from this perspective that Christianity is not true and they're reading it from a very naturalistic viewpoint. And you'll see that according to the modern consensus, we're going to talk about this again in a second, the modern scholarly consensus is that the Gospel of Mark was written first. And that's not just amongst atheist or skeptical scholars, that's amongst scholars in general. Even conservative evangelical scholars hold that Mark was written first. But the issue I have with that is that most of the reasons why they hold that arises from skepticism, right? And the reason why Mark is typically touted as the first is because it is the shortest of the Gospels, and there's this presumption that as time passed, the story of Jesus was expanded upon. And that's kind of just this understood thing for why Mark was written first, because it's the shortest, it was probably the original, and then later Matthew and Luke came along and expanded upon it. So that's really an issue I have with it. And obviously, conservative evangelical scholars will not hold to the fact that this was expanded upon in a negative sense, but they will kind of 
that is the launching point. It'll just take it for granted that Mark was written first because it's the shortest. Whereas to me, that might not necessarily be the case. Maybe Mark had a reason for making his shorter rather than things just being expanded upon. Uh, and so because modern scholarship largely approaches this subject from a stance of skepticism, there are two things they discount. Firstly, the role of memory, and secondly, the role of divine inspiration. Uh, so one aspect of it is that they just for, like they just very quickly discount the role of oral tradition and the role of memory, and they'll almost treat memory as if it's like a game of telephone. As if people can't memorize extended discourses of things accurately and that they're due to mess up. Uh, which is possible, right? I mean, yeah, there's going to be hiccups and stuff now and then, but I mean, Matthew and John specifically, I mean, I mean, there's also scholars who will debate whether or not Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John actually wrote Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. But if we're assuming that these are the people who actually wrote these, Matthew and John spent three and a half years with Jesus. They were his apostles. And so the possibility of them memorizing extended discourses of his stuff is not beyond the realms of possibility. And so one issue that I have is that most scholarly approaches to this synoptic problem, and I've got so many books about it that I've read right back here. I wrote my master's thesis on this whole issue. Um, so I've dived really deeply into this. And one big issue I have is that they very quickly discount the role of memory uh, to where they're like, oh no, memory is just like, it's not trustworthy. I mean, it kind of can be, I mean, yes, it can be faulty as well, but we can't just immediately discount the role of that. But then a bigger thing that we can't discount immediately is the role of divine inspiration in all of this, right? The idea that maybe God was helping them preserve this material. Uh, and I'm not wanting to take this to another extreme, uh, because, and I'm going to address that in just a second. Um, but we have to realize that most people approaching the synoptic problem are simply approaching it from a naturalistic viewpoint. And they are presuming the idea that God had no role in producing these books. And I just don't want us to forget that, right? And so uh, I, I just wanted to put that out there because that's one issue that I've noticed is that oftentimes in these studies, they approach it skeptically, they discount oral tradition, and they also just disregard the idea that these were divinely inspired. And that's sadly even in the realms of conservative evangelical scholarship, which really bugs me. At the same time, the Gospels themselves don't negate the possibility of interdependence. And this is something that I do want to clarify because I have seen some very well-meaning Christians go to this extreme almost to combat this whole idea of the synoptic problem. And what I mean by this is that a lot of Christians, very well-meaning, they'll say, well, you know what? Like, God could have just inspired them to produce these Gospels and they didn't even need one another. And you know what? That is possible. It is possible that God inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke to produce these Gospels and that they produce that similar material without using one another. My main point in saying this and making this clarification is that the Gospels themselves don't negate the possibility of that interdependence. There's no place in Matthew, Mark, or Luke where they suggest that they didn't use other sources, right? And that's just something we need to recognize. I mean, specifically Mark and Luke, they had to use sources because they weren't eyewitnesses, right? Matthew was at least an eyewitness, so it would make sense if all of his stuff comes from him. But I mean, he's telling the story of Jesus' birth and he wasn't there for that. And so no matter what, they had to use sources. And Luke even suggests this in his opening prologue. He suggests that other people have made accounts and he's using those accounts to produce his. And so all because we view that God divinely inspired this and all because we think all because we hold that memory played a role into this as well, that doesn't mean that Matthew, Mark, and Luke couldn't have used one another in the production of their Gospels. Um, that is actually very possible, and I would say very likely. And so I just wanted to clarify that as well, because 
Some people are very well-meaning and they're very pious, but they end up going to this opposite extreme that the Bible itself doesn't pigeonhole us into. And so I just wanted to clarify that. That being said, uh, just to close out this video, what I wanted to do is I just wanted to go through some of the predominant theories that people have in regards to how these books were constructed. And really the two things we're going to look at are theories called Markan priority and Matthean priority. Markan priority is the idea that the gospel of Mark was written first and Matthean priority is the idea that the gospel of Matthew was written first. Uh, there are some people who hold to Luke in priority, the idea that the gospel of Luke was written first, but it's such a small group of people and it doesn't have a very big reason to hold to that I'm not really not going to address it. And practically nobody holds that John was written first because John himself in his gospel kind of makes it pretty clear that he's not writing first. Uh, and so really the two contenders are who was written first, Matthew or Mark. And like I mentioned, the broad scholarly consensus for the last 200 years has been that Mark was written first. Prior to that, for the 1800 years before that, pretty much everybody held that Matthew was written first. Uh, but I'm going to start by addressing some of the market theories, and then I'll talk about some of the Matthean theories, and then we'll just wrap this video up. Okay, so... Common theories of market priority, part one. The first one is the Ferrer hypothesis. And basically, this guy came along, Ferrer, and he argued that Mark was written first, and then Matthew came along, and he used the Gospel of Mark to produce his Gospel. And then Luke came along, and he had access to both Mark and Matthew, and he then produced his Gospel. That's a very simple one, and it would help explain a lot of the different possible, like a lot of the different issues there, because it would explain how Luke has stuff that is unique to Matthew, and Luke has stuff unique to Mark that he also puts in his. Uh, and basically, the idea would be that Luke just kind of picked and chose what he decided to include in there. Uh, and then you have the Matthean posterity hypothesis, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like that Matthew was written last. It basically flips the order of Matthew and Luke uh, to where Mark wrote first, Luke came after that. And then Matthew came last, and he took what was written in Mark and Luke, and he just kind of pick and chose what he wanted to put in there. Uh, these theories do have some problems to them, uh, but they are still very valid theories, and I would say of the Mark and Priority theories, these are the ones I favor more than the ones that are about to come up. Uh, because these ones are the most simplistic explanations. Whereas whenever you get to like these next ones right here, you start getting more complicated. So one is called the two source hypothesis. And this is where scholarship really starts bugging me because what they end up doing, and this is not just in synoptic problem stuff. This is just broadly speaking. A lot of the times scholarship becomes so obsessed with knowledge and having answers that they become extremely uncomfortable with mysteries. And they actually resist the idea of not knowing something to such a degree that they'll start coming up with theories that they will then call facts and they'll just run with them. And that really bothers me. And you see this with the two source hypothesis, right? So the idea is that Mark was written first and then Matthew and Luke came afterwards. But this theory points out the fact that there's a lot of stuff that is common to Matthew and Luke that is not found in Mark. And therefore they will suggest that there was another source called Q. And we just call it Q because it's from the Latin word quell, which means source. And this is a document we have never found. It is entirely hypothetical. We have no proof that such a document ever existed. And I'm not saying that it couldn't have existed. I'm just saying that it is entirely hypothetical, but in most scholarly books that you read about, they will talk about this thing as if it is fact and as if we almost have access to it. But they will mention, oh yeah, we don't have any access to this. We never have any proof that it exists, but they'll talk about it as if it's factual. 
We have no proof that Q existed, but they will say that there was a source called Q and Matthew and Luke had access to that as well. And so, according to this theory, Mark was written first, and then Q was also written, and then Matthew had access to both of them, and then he picked and chose what he wanted to put in his gospel, and then Luke also had access to both of them, and he picked and chose what he put in his gospel, and they just landed in different places on what they wanted to put in their gospels. And that is the two-source hypothesis, is the idea that both Matthew and Luke had two sources they were calling upon. The issue with that is that, once again, we don't have any proof that Q existed. It is entirely hypothetical, and you have to realize that whenever you read synoptics problem stuff, because people will come to conclusions about how all this stuff happened presupposing that Q existed. And I've read so many books that it genuinely drives me nuts. So many books that lead to these massive theories presupposing the existence of Q because they can't fathom the idea that anything other than Mark was written first. And the only reason Q has to exist is if Mark was written first. And since they inherently view that the Gospels were produced in an expansionary method, they have to assert that there was this other document as well, right? So if Matthew and Luke have stuff in common, they must have got it from somewhere else because there's no reason why Mark could have been written later on because we know that these things expand. That's kind of their mindset there, which is really problematic. But then you have another hypothesis, which is really just the logical extension of the two-source hypothesis, and this is the four-source hypothesis, right? And so this one is just like the two-source hypothesis, but it addresses the thing that the two-source hypothesis did not address, which is the fact that Matthew still has very unique information that is not found in Mark or Luke, and that Luke has very unique information that is not found in Matthew or Mark. And so what the four-source hypothesis does is it just takes the two-source hypothesis to its logical extension and says, all right, here's what must have happened. Matthew had access to Mark and Q, but he also had access to another document, which we can call Proto-Matthew or M. And he had access to that one, and he used those three sources to produce his gospel. Luke, on the other hand, had access to Mark and Q, but he didn't have access to M, but he did have access to a fourth source, which is Proto-Luke, a.k.a. L. And he used Mark, Q, and L to produce Luke, whereas Matthew used M, Mark, and Q to produce Matthew. And so this is just the way that they will explain this. But once again, M, Q, and L are all hypothetical documents that we have no proof of, and we have no documentation of, and there's no document we've ever found that even resembles this. But people will suggest that they existed. And they'll talk about them as if they have existed. And scholars are so focused and so committed to the idea that these exist that they will literally try to copy. And like they, they've literally tried to replicate and reproduce the documents that they think that these would have been, right? And so you can literally go and you can find documents where they say, this is what Q documents said, but we don't have any access to it. Which is pretty baffling whenever you realize that these are the same scholars who will suggest that we have no idea what the Bible originally said and that they'll say we have to approach the Bible very skeptically and stuff like that. Those same people are saying that they are so smart that they can point out what the Bible doesn't say and where the Bible is wrong, even though we have thousands of manuscripts testifying otherwise. Those same scholars will say that they know exactly how to produce a document that has never existed. To me, this is a textbook example of the Bible when it says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Uh, it is people becoming so obsessed with intellectual accomplishments and knowing everything that they refuse to sit in the mystery of something. And that really bothers me. Uh, and so those are some of the 
predominant theories are mark and priority. There's other theories as well, but those are the main ones. Uh, but now I want to close off this video by talking about Methuen priority, which is once again, where I would land. Uh, and there's two theories I want to share with you. These are just the predominant ones. And these are the ones that trace back, not just to uh, the last few hundred years, but really back to the earliest uh, records we have of how the gospels were produced. And the first one is the Augustinian hypothesis. And it's named after St. Augustine, uh, because this is the position that he held. Uh, and that was that basically the gospels were produced in the order that you find them in your Bibles, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke. So Matthew was written first and then Mark used Matthew to produce his gospel. And then Luke came along later on and he used Matthew and Mark to produce his gospel. And the cool thing about this theory, and it's going to be the same thing with the next one, is that whenever Mark does not come first, you no longer have to come up with hypothetical documents to explain the stuff away, right? So if Mark and priority is true, then the two source and four source hypothesis probably are the most likely because you do have to explain some of these other sources. However, if one of the longer gospels came first, you no longer need a hypothetical source to defend it, right? And so that's what the Augustinian hypothesis has to its favor. But then you also have the Griesbach hypothesis, which basically flips the order of Matthew and Luke so that you actually have the longer gospels being presented first. You actually have the gospels with the genealogies coming first. And you have Matthew being written first, and then Luke came along later, and he used Matthew as well as other sources to produce his gospel. And then Mark came along, and he used both Matthew and Luke to produce his shorter gospel. The main issue facing this one, and I don't think it's that big of an argument, but people will ask, okay, well, if Matthew and Luke already existed, why did Mark need to be written? And that is typically, and I, I kid you not, if you read most of the arguments in these books that I've got on my shelf right here, most of the arguments will hinge on that single question. They will say, we don't know why Mark would need to exist if Matthew and Luke already existed. Therefore, this has to be false. Whereas to me, once again, that is simply assuming that you know all the answers, right? Maybe you need to rest in the mystery. I actually think that we have good reasons for why Mark would exist. I'm going to actually present some of those in the next video, but I'm simply pointing out all because you can't give an explanation for something doesn't make that thing false right? But that's exactly like most gospel scholarship nowadays is built on that single premise. If Matthew and Luke existed, why does Mark need to exist? Because Mark doesn't have that much unique material that's not found in Matthew and Luke. Therefore, Mark has no purpose. And they will use that as arguments. Oh, well, therefore Mark must have come first. I have a big problem with that. Uh, and I do not think that that's how we should approach things. I don't think we should say, oh, I can't think of a reason. Therefore, that must be false. To me, that is a very arrogant perspective to take, and I cannot land there. That all being said, that's all I got for y'all today. Thank you so, so much for joining in. If you did enjoy this, leaving a positive review of the podcast would be a major, major help. I don't like asking for stuff like that, but it would be really helpful, especially as we get this thing up and running. I'll stop rambling, though, because I'm sure you've got plenty of other stuff to do today. Until next time, I'm David Tate, and this is Now Let's Be Honest. Be sure to keep a smile on your face, and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.